Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. We've been walking through a study on the book of Job, asking, where is God in my suffering? And this week, in our fourth episode, we'll be looking at the closing appeal Job is going to offer in chapters 28 to 31. Repeatedly, the friends of Job have attempted to minimize, silence, and over-spiritualize Job's sufferings and the questions he's asking of God. Yet through it all, Job has refused to be silenced, and will close with a powerful statement of counter-testimony. Why is it that it's so hard for us to listen to the voice of the sufferer? And what is it that victims of abuse truly need when it comes to making an appeal for justice? If we're to journey with Job, we can't miss the importance of the appeal, speaking the truth of our deepest needs to God. This is an episode about the power when victims of suffering finally get the chance to speak. Last week, that when it came to the dialogue between Job and his friends, it could be helpful to picture the high-stakes drama of a courtroom, where the friends and Job are contesting as prosecution and defense the very nature of Job and the integrity of God. Well, in the beginning of 2018, a seven-day public hearing exploded onto the national spotlight. Over 150 former gymnasts, including several gold medalists, offered damning public testimony about the repeated sexual assaults of Larry Nassar, the primary physician of the USA women's gymnastics team. If you recall, only three months earlier, in October 2017, the New York Times had run a story about Harvey Weinstein and the cover-up around his sexual assault allegations. The hashtag MeToo movement had erupted as a response, and now it seemed the nation was finally ready, indeed riveted, to listen to the testimony of woman after woman who, after years of abuse, of dismissal and denials, were finally being believed. For that brief spell of seven days, there was this hopeful glimmer of justice in the air that finally seemed to be pushing back against the toxic fog of secrecy and abuse that had so long plagued women and survivors of sexual assault everywhere. However, as we've had time to reflect on the Larry Nassar sentencing and the testimonies that were offered, This troubling pattern consistently seemed to emerge. The more details that have come out about the Larry Nassar case, the more one realizes how quickly, how easily we tend not to believe the victim. Several months after the sentencing, NPR and University of Michigan would put together a podcast called Believed that walked through the details of the case. Yet as one listens to the horrific details of the Nassar abuses, you're struck over and over again how often it was just easier to avoid, to ignore, or to explain away the offenses. For instance, in 2004, a teenager who felt uncomfortable with her treatment reported it to the police only to have them accept Nassar's explanation that they were valid medical treatments. In 2014, another woman came forward, yet this time she was a grad student who herself was studying medicine, and yet she too was not believed, both by the University of Michigan and the police who would side with Nassar's story. Perhaps most horrifically of all, one of Nassar's neighbors would share how after being molested by Nassar during family get-togethers in the basement for six years, she would share about the abuse with her parents and even a child psychologist, only to have them all agree that she had simply misinterpreted Nassar's actions. As you listen to these heartbreaking stories, you feel bewildered. 
How could so many people have such a hard time hearing the truth about abuse? The worst part was that many who dismissed these allegations were people who actually cared deeply about the victims. These were friends, family, authorities intent on protecting those they cared for. The only response the podcast could offer was that it was incredibly difficult for anyone to accept that which would otherwise compromise a previously held belief. If we're being honest, what's so frustrating about reading the dialogues between Job and his friends is the same frustrations we have when we listen to the stories of the victims of the Larry Nassar case. Friends who care should be able to listen, but they experience so much to be at stake. The friends of Job have their very vision of God being tested by what Job is claiming, so they adamantly refuse, choosing instead to ask patronizing questions, prodding at possible inconsistencies in Job's character, and denying the validity of Job's pain. Yet what happens when the victims of suffering finally get their day in court? What happens when we finally listen to the sufferer's appeal? Over the course of those seven days, Larry Nassar was finally forced to confront those who had been wronged by him. Some of the women would speak honestly of the ongoing pain. They'd talk of eating disorders, depression, suicide attempts because of the secret shame that their abuse had harbored. Yet as they spoke through tears, you're able to witness the powerful freedom taking place through the naming of abuse in the company of fellow sufferers. I mean, it was incredible to watch woman after woman after giving her testimony in front of the crowd, be greeted by the arms of those other sufferers who would embrace her and celebrate her bravery. Others were able to directly address their abuser. One would say the powerful words, Larry, I trusted you, I defended you, but I now have come to see that I was abused by you. You are not my friend. I should never have trusted you, and I will never defend you again. This week, we're going to hear the appeal of Job. Now, I want to be the first to acknowledge there's a lot of complexity throughout the book of Job. It would be unwise to simply label the friends as villainous abusers, just as it would be unwise to simply endorse everything Job has said thus far. As I've tried to note again and again, the friends repeatedly do seem sincere in their attempt to comfort Job. They are doing the best they know how. And Job is repeatedly raw in what he says. At some points he lashes out, he's depressed, even suicidal. He's angry at God. Yet as I've been wrestling with how Job continues to speak to us today, I can't help but see parallels to the many marginalized whose voice is so often attempted to be silenced, repressed, and ignored. And I can't help but wonder if Job is attempting to offer a biblical model of the dignity of speech, one in which space is made for an appeal to be heard, even if that appeal is messy, imperfect, and emotional. The dialogues ended when Job cut off the speech of the friends in chapter 26. He had had enough of their system that argued God to be removed, retributive, and Job to be in the wrong. Now, in four final chapters, Job will stand before the jury of us, his readers, and he will make a final appeal. This all will begin in chapter 28. When working through Job, it would be easy to miss the beauty and significance of Job 28. The English Bible gives little clues to the shift that takes place between chapters 27 and 28. In fact, my ESV translation has the heading that simply says, Job continues. 
However, such a flattening misses the poetic heights that the chapter will soar to, as well as the natural pause in the action that's going to occur. One commentator calls Job 28 a soliloquy, an interior musing spoken aloud. This is the start of Job's closing statement, an epic monologue offered before the jury. Another commentator will note that it's almost like a fermenta in orchestration, this note that lingers in a transitional moment to keep tempo with the remaining symphony. There are these two possible proposals I find convincing as we're about to consider chapter 28. One is that Job 28 captures the words of Job himself as he pauses reflectively and prepares to encounter God. He's received enough space from his pain that he now asks a far deeper question. And the question is this, where is wisdom to be found? The struggle with suggesting Job, however, is the one who's offering us this soliloquy, is that some of what Job says here in chapter 28 seems dissonant with where he'll be at in the remainder of his appeal. In verse 23, the poem will actually answer its own question. Chapter 28 says, God understands the way to wisdom. He knows its place. At the end of the poem, the often repeated refrain of wisdom literature will be affirmed. Here's what it says in verse 28. God said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. If this was merely Job's words, it would have to be either an early resolution that he's going to walk back from in the following chapters, or his best attempt to return to the trust and faith he held at the beginning of the story. Both do make sense to me, yet as a reader, there's something wonderfully complex about Job's struggle with faith here, almost as if he's saying, maybe I fear the Lord as the best way to wisdom. Maybe my lack of faith has been doing this wrong. However, the other option some interpreters will suggest is that chapter 28 is a rare interruption from the narrator themselves who's returning now after the opening story of chapters 1 to 2. If this is true, we've briefly paused in the action for the narrator themselves to draw us in to the real question being asked across the whole journey of Job. Where is wisdom to be found in the midst of so much suffering? Using the soaring heights of poetic language, it's as if the narrator is giving us a reprieve for just a moment to lift our heads above the clouds of the suffering that has been taking place. Much as Ecclesiastes will conclude by pointing us at the end of its book that after all of this malaise, surely fear of the Lord is the only possible way, Job too wants to be clear, fear of the Lord is Israel's best answer to how we're supposed to find the good life in the midst of interpretive complexity. So this chapter could be Job speaking, offering us a messy journey that fluctuates back and forth from faith to doubt, or it could be the narrator speaking, reminding us that at the heart of Job is the quest for wisdom and the need to return to a fear of the Lord. Yet either way, the point of this chapter is clear. If we're to endure suffering, we need wisdom, and if we're going to find wisdom, we need to know where to look. Let me read to you the start of the chapter. This is Job 28, 1-6. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. 
As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphire, and it has dust of gold. The point of the poem, as mysterious and poetic as it sounds, is that we as human beings go on endless searches for wisdom. We find ourselves digging high and digging low. Verses 3 to 4 will say, Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, looking for the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens up shafts in a valley far away from where anyone lives, yet they are forgotten by travelers. I've had this chance in my pastoral work to try to stay up on the latest trends of self-help books, thinkers, and authors. The shelves are endlessly lined with them. New books are constantly proposing the new insights of meditation, mindfulness, positive psychology, atomic habits, and methods for deep work. Most of it is great. But every time I read another author put forth the revolutionary way their method can help change your life, I just start to find myself growing disillusioned and tired. Like humanity keeps searching, and I keep being offered these new hopes of new paths to wisdom, and yet inevitably I find that they're just as tired and worn out shafts that were dug deep, but ultimately yielded little reward. Listen to Job 28 as it continues in verses 12 to 15. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. This is the heart of the chapter, the question found in verse 12. Where is wisdom to be found? Where is the place of understanding? We as humanity don't know its worth. We look for it in the deeps, and yet we still can't price it with silver. Our shelves are lined with books, our panels are lined with experts, and yet still we struggle to answer the most basic questions about ourself. Who are we? Why are we struggling? Why is this happening to me? And where is God in the midst of it? The poem will continue in verses 20 to 27. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard rumor of it with our ears. Yet God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. As we reflect on the second half of chapter 28, we're led to the conclusion that surely there is only one answer. Surely there is only one hope. When it comes to the question, where can wisdom be found? We're ultimately only given one possible answer. Surely in our contested age of truth, where Facebook hacks and fake news spins our head, where government and authority figures disappoint and betray us, where legal systems let us down and the innocent are accused while the wicked are allowed to walk free, surely we must return with Job to the only hope of an answer. Where is wisdom to be found? Job says in verse 28, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding.
Here's what I know. The questions Job has asked are urgent and important. His suffering has been intense, and his friends have failed to listen to his case. But his true need is far greater than earthly wisdom can provide. At this point, we're not even told, in response to chapter 28, what heavenly wisdom will be in Job's case. But we do know how bad Job needs heavenly wisdom, how bad we need it. And the book of Job is clear, as is all the other wisdom literature in the Bible, that the only place one can hope to find wisdom will be in fear of the Lord. So that's Job 28. It's one of the high points of the book, and I'd encourage you to go to our website, burningwordpodcast.com, and check out the free study we have so that you can sit down and spend time with the passage. But if Job 28 is the start of a closing statement, we find that Job's case is not quite done being defended. Job 29.1 will say, Job again took up his discourse. Job still has more to say. This is often the case with suffering. I resonate here with Job's need to extend his appeal. And I know how hard it can be to listen as the victim must yet again present their case. Yet this presentation by Job deeply matters and resonates with the heart of any sufferer. So now we'll turn to Job 29. He begins with a review of his past blessings. Job 29.2 will say, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. Such deep longing here as Job looks back on the life he used to have. Verse 4 describes the friendship of God that was upon my tent. And verse 5 will talk about when my children were all around me. Job describes this scene in chapter 29 where young and old in the city would gather to listen to hear him speak. The poor would cry out to him because they knew he cared for his needs. Job becomes almost grandiose in his claims. This is verse 14 to 16 of Job 29. He'll say, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to those in need. Seems like incredibly strong language and it can almost feel like too much. Yet many interpreters have pointed out that by the end of the chapter, there's this one intriguing verse. Verse 29 in chapter 29. Job will say this, I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops. Commentators have pointed out and sometimes wondered, is Job being described as the greatest of men among the East because Job was actually a king? And thus this language, this kingly language of someone responsible for righteousness or being eyes to the blind and fathered to those in need is actually true language. Job was, in fact, looking out for and overseeing the community as he cared for their needs and worked as a righteous king. Regardless, the defendant that is Job is going to make a turn in chapter 30. He'll stop looking at his past blessings and will instead start describing his current broken state. It's a stark contrast. He'll say in chapter 30, verse 1, But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Job is now despised by the very people who once admired him. He is now derided by those who once sought him as wise. He is spat at by those who had revered him. Job will describe these interactions as terrors that are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my property has passed away like a cloud. It's verse 19. Honor, of course, was everything in the ancient world. 
It was believed to be demonstrated by the gradual success one found in their endeavors, which were considered to be blessings, and would be established over the years as you grew in stature and became the wise elder of the community. But Job, now in his late age, will describe a situation of utter disgrace rather than being revered. It's like the stain of a felony, the failure of declaring bankruptcy, or the isolation of divorce after once having been part of a rich and flourishing community. This description of Job's current sufferings reflects a bizarre occurrence that happens repeatedly to the victims of abuse. Psychologists have long been heartbreakingly fascinated by it. When abuse occurs, there's such a breakdown of identity in the victim of suffering that they often internalize the new identity of their abuse. This means that they either gravitate towards those who often end up abusing them again, or they start living out bizarre actions that are no longer aligned with who they used to be, but reflect instead this state of perpetual suffering. So to those looking on, this confirmation bias forms. Maybe they deserve the suffering they're currently getting. I mean, they do seem to sleep around a lot. Why did that abuse keep going? They seem to be wearing inappropriate clothing. I just don't get the sense that there's someone who wouldn't have done the abuse that they're describing. Job is talking about something akin to this in the pattern of his current breakdown in community. His suffering has caused him to powerfully protest his innocence. Yet the more he protests his innocence, the more the friends scrutinize that maybe he had in fact done something wrong. Now they look on to a man who's been shamed, who's being spit on and ignored, and in the mire of society, they more and more begin to assume that surely Job has in fact done something to deserve this wrong. He'll say in verse 16, My soul is now poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. He describes nights racked by pain, clothes that now he wears disheveled. At the fever pitch of his cry, Job will say, God has cast me in the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. It's verses 19 to 20. It's as if all those former words, which used to hold together the coherence of life, now describe the utter devastation of Job's current state. Life which had once been so steady and secure now looks like dust and ashes. This is an important phrase we're going to return to later in Job's confession. But for now, Job, as every sufferer, has cried and cried, and God has only stopped by, pausing to look on. Job has poured out his life for the good of those around him. But he'll end chapter 30 by saying, But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. This leads us to the third and final movement of Job's appeal, chapter 31. Chapter 31 reads like the bullet points of Job's defense. He'll go on to lay out 14 sins he has not committed. And he'll describe, through these 14 sins that have not occurred, a life of rigorous, disciplined, moral purity and communal investment. If you go back and read this chapter, he'll cover everything from lusting with the eyes in verse 1 to cheating in business, verses 5 to 6, to a, even a posture of callousness towards the poor or a lack of pity to travelers, verses 7 to 8 or verses 19 to 20. 
He'll go so far as to say he has not committed a failure of hospitality, verse 32. He has not concealed any sins, verses 33 to 34. In fact, Job's claims are so comprehensive, his oaths so far-reaching, that one can't help but feel removed from the utter blamelessness of Job's state. Interestingly, some have been tempted to dismiss Job here. He seems so bold and proud of his accomplishments that only a Pharisee would nod their head in approval or seek to compete with Job in this chapter. Yet I lean more towards belief. I think victims need the trust of our belief. Instead of questioning Job's every action on this point, instead of trying to poke holes in his defense, I want to sit and listen to what Job is saying. He has been left alone. He's been accused repeatedly of falsifying his claims. No one has believed him. No one has defended him. The arbiter he hoped for has not yet come. What choice does he have? The victim of abuse must speak out for themselves if no one else is willing to listen. They must present the evidence. And it's important to note that we were told at the beginning of the story that Job truly was blameless and pure. He's not crazy. He's not making this up. His suffering does not make sense. So when it comes to our own journey of suffering and walking with Job, what role does an appeal have in our own stories? Well, one of the great commentators on the book of Job is Carol Newsom, and she points out that these past four chapters have functioned as what she calls a working rhetorical world. They are like blueprints for Job's case. He's mapped out in these four chapters the way the world should be. There should be community that's rich and flourishing instead of the isolation and suffering he's endured. These 14 sins he has not committed should form the foundation of a community life that he believes is firm and secure. It's almost as if Job is saying, this all could have worked. It should have worked the way that I've been mapping this out. Yet the problem Newsom notes is that for all Job's sincere commitment and belief, the world he's presented has fallen apart instead. The world does not work, as Job's blueprint says. Justice can't actually be established by Job. This is the problem all of us face in our suffering. We build these working rhetorical worlds in our hearts, and yet inevitably, when suffering comes, we find our worlds falling apart. We thought life couldn't be this way. There were rules of how life should have gone. In fact, most of our emotional energy and questioning is searching for a way to rebuild the world as we once knew it, the working rhetorical world we used to inhabit. Our appeal, like Job, is seeking a way that world might be restored. Maybe we can get it back. Maybe if we just piece our appeal together, then finally the blueprint will make sense. Job is pointing almost desperately to these sins he didn't commit. But what does that really matter in a world that he's increasingly realizing does not always distribute justice? Job can't make sense of it. He's missing too many pieces for his world to be reconstructed again, no matter how powerful any of us think the evidence is for why our suffering is not fair and does not make sense. Our appeals will always lead us to this same point with Job. We cannot restore the world on our own. We cannot get our blueprints to align with the way we think life should be. We're simply missing too many pieces. And we will need help if we are to present our appeal to God. I think if we want to make sense of Job's appeal, there's something he's been missing, something that he will desperately need. 
As Job has contested his case with the friends, Job had a growing sense of his need for help if he were to appear before God and present his case. In chapter 23, verse 3 to 4, Job will say, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I would lay my case before him. And here in chapter 31, 35, Job will repeat, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Yet if such an appearance were to occur, Job has known the whole time how easily his case would be dismissed before God. As early as chapter 9, Job would say, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. This is an intriguing statement. Job wonders aloud if perhaps he were to encounter God, then he would certainly need someone to stand between them, a lawyer who would argue on his defense. Later in chapter 13, Job again would reflect on his need for an arbiter. He says, Behold, I've prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right, but who is there who will contend with me? For then I could be silent and die. Here is Job's dilemma. He's longing for this encounter with God, yet he also fears it. He knows if he were to stand before God, it would be too much. He therefore knows that what he really needs is an arbiter, someone to contend on his behalf, to present his case before God. So in the most famous verse of Job, Job 25.19, often taken out of context, Job will proclaim, Yet I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Job is starting to catch this glimpse of a possible Redeemer, someone who could stand as an arbiter on his behalf and present his case before God. If we're left with a dissatisfied taste in our mouth after reading Job's final appeal, it's because what Job truly needs most is an arbiter to fight on his behalf. Recently, my wife and I began watching the American television show Suits, a show that basically follows a big-time hotshot lawyer and his associate he's training in New York City. Each episode always seems to find them up against the odds, only to miraculously pull out a victory. In some ways, it's more fairy tale than reality. There's no way being a lawyer in real life is that exhilarating or satisfying. In some ways, it's not even a great TV show. I'm sure there's better law shows out there. But as my wife and I were talking about Job recently, she pointed out to me how satisfying it is to see a skilled lawyer argue their case on behalf of their client. In fact, when you're a really good lawyer, you don't even have to say anything yourself. The lawyer prepares everything for you, unearths all the necessary evidence, combs through the history of the law, passionately gives everything, making sure no stone is left unturned so that you can, with absolute certainty, have your case defended. I think such shows, and let's be honest, there are many such shows, in fact, all the longest-running TV shows are all about law and order, the classic problem, investigation, defense, and justice scenario. I think that such shows are so powerful because we all long so deeply for justice to be real. True justice. Not just justice that we have to win for ourselves. Justice that is searched out on our behalf, investigated for us. An arbiter who argues our case and defends our behalf. We long for just such an arbiter and just such justice. In the Larry Nassar sentencing hearing, the most incredible appeal came at the very end, in the form of Rachel Den Hollander. Den Hollander, who herself was trained as a lawyer, was the one who called in to the Indianapolis Star, who first broke the story about Nassar's abuses. After two years of having received treatment from Nassar when she was a teenager, 
Den Hollander had gone back and collected her journal entries from the time, medical records of her appointments, and done her own investigation that had prepared the court with everything it needed to investigate Nassar further. She had been a champion of the other girls, being the first to speak publicly with her own name and encouraging others to also speak out. In her closing address, she would confront not only Nassar, but also USA Gymnastics and University of Michigan for repeated suppression of the truth. She would speak out against a culture of disbelief. In the end, when she did address Nassar directly, incredibly before the whole country, she would extend to him her own Christian faith. This is what she said to Nassar. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. She would end with this powerful question to the judge and to the jury. What is a woman worth? Look around this courtroom. Remember what you have witnessed these past seven days. This is what it looks like when someone chooses to put their selfish desires above the safety and love of those around them. This is what it looks like when adults in authority do not respond properly to disclosures of sexual assault. This is what it looks like when institutions create a culture where a predator can flourish, unafraid and unabated. And this is what it looks like when people in authority refuse to listen, when they put friendships in front of the truth, fail to create or enforce proper policy, and fail to hold enablers accountable. This is what it looks like. It looks like a courtroom full of survivors who carry deep wounds. Women and girls who have banded together to fight for themselves because no one else would do it. As I hear Den Hollander's words, I hear the power of an arbiter. One who knows intimately other women's suffering, but who can stand in for them. This is what Job was longing for. This is what Job ultimately needed. One who could fight on his behalf, establish justice for him. Deep down, each of us sense this existential need to be true. We need a true arbiter. Now, I don't want to rush ahead, but if there's anything missing in Job's appeal that Den Hollander captures in the essence of hers, is that Job should not have to make the case of his suffering on his own behalf. The early church would glimpse this when they insisted quite clearly that Job in his calls for an arbiter was seeing prophetically beyond his own need. Job was seeing a need for every person who suffers in the world, where suffering seems to make no sense at all. We need a Christ, one who would come for us, who would represent us, who could understand us, contend for us, and establish justice on our behalf. I know many today are offended by associating the Apostle Paul's writing on justification with overly forensic or legal terms, yet I think reading Paul carefully makes a powerful connection here with Job's state. To be justified by Christ is not some cheap transaction or legal fiction that takes place in Paul's mind, but it instead is the appearance of the arbiter himself, one who holds the authority of God but is here to argue and even contend on our behalf. Who else intimately knows our own suffering? What other answer could possibly do? This is our appeal from the wounded cry of our souls. Who will defend us? Who will stand with us? Where will wisdom be found? It must be God himself, the suffering God offered to us in Jesus Christ. To return to where we began, we continue to inhabit a world of violated victims and contested truth. 
The church herself has played a role in neglecting such appeals and in suffering from the many deserved consequences as a result. When will we learn to listen to the sufferer? When will we learn to heed the voice of the victims? Each week, I've offered an exercise as a way to inhabit this journey with Job or on, taking account of our suffering and attempting to seek the same encounter Job seeks with God. This week is another crucial exercise. I'm going to invite you to follow Job by writing your own appeal. You can find our study as well as the PDF download with the exercise on it at the website, www.burningwordpodcast.com. If you have particularly suffered, have been silenced, or have found your pain minimized, or something far worse, your abuse ignored, then it's going to be immensely important for you to follow Job by documenting your appeal. One of the repeated refrains of this study is that the only way we're going to journey through our suffering is to speak. The only way we're going to follow Job is to follow his courage to boldly put forth our case before God. I long to be part of a community that can listen to the appeals of the sufferer. I long for the church to be a place that offers healing to the abused. This is the hope hidden in Job. What if your case could be made? What if you didn't have to suffer alone? What if God will soon speak? This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.